ducks fly in a flock. And when it comes time for ducks begin to descend, they'll spread their wings, cup them, and one will lead the way. And as he leads the way, if he finds out there's danger, that lead duck will make a sound that warns the other ducks, and he will then immediately ascend, and the flock will fly away. In other words, there is protection that they have. But then every once in a while, you get that lone duck who just wants to fly by him or herself. And they begin the descent, and they see a bunch of other ducks sitting on a pond or body of water, assuming those other ducks there are friendly, that lone rogue duck begins the descent, not realizing the ducks that look so friendly are not real ducks. They're just decoys intended to deceive. And then, in the blink of an eye, with a pull of a trigger, that lone duck becomes duck soup. The people of God are similar in some ways. But I wonder sometimes if we fail to appreciate the relationship called the church because that term itself has taken on an institutional kind of, of, of mindset. By institutional mindset, what I simply mean is it's become a term in which the church is just simply a part of a larger organization. And that organization has council, it has presidents, it has people or higher hierarchy in the religious world over it who then tell that church and other church that are part of that super organization what they are to do, what they are to teach, and on down the line. This is an illustration of that for a moment. Now, I'm not trying in any way to, to, to denigrate anybody. But among the Methodist denominations, there has been a major split recently. And the major split is because some among the Methodists no longer want to be governed by the Methodist Synod, which is a council that heads the Methodist church, that tells the Methodist what to preach, tells the Methodist preacher where to go and how long he can stay there. The reason the split came is because the Methodist Church as an organization and then their sister churches has adopted into their fellowship teaching and practice the acceptance of homosexuality, LGBTQ, and transgender, and also women being used in leadership roles in a church. And there's some still fundamental with that system of belief. We look at the Bible and regardless of what the synod or council or the hierarchy says about it, it says that doesn't jihaw with the scripture. And they separate themselves from the Methodist council. Well, the religious world, when you hear the word church by and large, thinks of a church as part of a larger organization, that organization that has councils or heads who then tell that church what they are to teach, what they are to preach, and who can, they can have as a preacher, and who they can have as their leaders. I wonder sometimes, if, if we're not careful, we, we begin to, in our mentality, begin to think of the church that institutional kind of way. 
And I'll tell you just a couple of things that, that I don't know that people mean it when they say this, but it, it led us to that kind of thinking. Well, you know, the Church of Christ, the Church of Christ, they, you know, the Church of Christ, it's just the Church of Christ, as though the Church of Christ is part of some super organization called the Church of Christ. And that's not true. You know, people will join any number of organizations for whatever reason. They'll become a part of some social organization like the Lions Club or the Kiwanis Club or the Rotator, uh, Rotary Club. Maybe Rotator Cup too. Especially if you're going to have Rotator Cup surgery about what's someone that, that club. Or you have the Cancer Society, the Heart Society. And people will join those. And as they, they join those, they then begin to think, okay, well, the church is somewhat like the, the Kiwanis Club, like the Lions Club. It's kind of an optional thing, and your presence and your participation there is optional as well. And then the second thing that comes is, where, where does the Bible ever talk about a local church and becoming a member of a local church? And because of that, I think there's a lot of confusion that exists in the religious world. And so I'll talk about some things relative to this this morning. But I want to begin, first of all, back of that. And I want to talk about the idea that is that we become a member of the church that belongs to Christ when we are baptized into Christ. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 says, As many as have put on Christ have been baptized into Christ. We're Abraham's children, he says. If we believe, and that believing we put on Christ, having been baptized into Christ. That baptized into Christ is baptized into a relationship with Him. Putting with that, Romans chapter 6, we're baptized also into the death benefits of Christ. And also, when we have been baptized into the death benefits of Christ, we have come to bury a dead man that has been crucified in repentance. And has been raised a new man. And that new man is in a new relationship with Christ and now in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew writer will talk about this relationship in a more general way because he talks about the general assembly of the firstborn. And in that, he's using the word general assembly in a, in a metaphorical way, the figurative way. And what he's talking about, that general assembly, is the general assembly of all the saved of all time, going all the way back to Abraham and moving forward. That general assembly has no collective function. That general assembly has no collective arrangement, no collective work together. It's just this. The Lord said, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What he's saying is I will establish a saved relationship with me and Satan is not going to be able to destroy it. And when he said I'll build my church, he's talking about that general assembly. What he's saying is, I'm going to have my people, and my people are going to be my people, and my people will be my people because they've been baptized into a saved relationship with me. I died for them. I purchased them with my blood. I paid the price for them. And that's what Luke is telling us in Acts chapter 20. When Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus to oversee the flock of God, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He's talking about those who are purchased with the blood of Christ are those who are part of the general assembly, who are part of those who he promised to establish 
in a saved relationship with him. In that saved relationship, there's a responsibility to love the Lord and to submit to him. And there's a responsibility in that saved relationship to serve. And those two obligations exist whether we're part of a local congregation, local fellowship or not. Everyone who is in Christ has the obligation to submit to the Lord as master and as Lord. Everyone who's in that saved relationship with Christ has the obligation to say, yes, sir, I bow to you because you purchased me with your own blood. But alas, the Lord didn't leave it there. He didn't leave it in a, in a general relationship, in a general assembly of people that has no, no assembling of people and no gathering, no, no function of people, no collective organization of people. And so the Lord realized that like ducks, there needs to be a collection of people to gather. And that collection of people to gather, they then can function together and they can then sound an alarm if and when danger approaches as opposed to being single by self and having no alarm of danger coming or can also participate in some other things we'll talk about in just a moment. What's interesting in this first consideration is that we are adding to the Lord's church that general assembly, that overall saved relationship when we're baptized into Christ. But we become a part of a local church, a local fellowship of people. Fellowship is the word partnership. It means we share in something. You give a share, I give a share, and we all share together in this. We become that part of that relationship when we join ourselves. You see this in Acts chapter 9 and verses 26 and 27. Paul has been gone from Jerusalem now for about three years. Following him being baptized by Ananias, he goes to Arabia. We find that out in Galatians chapter 2. He's been gone for three years. He hadn't talked to anybody much length of time. He spent 14 days with Peter, but that's about it. He comes back to Jerusalem. Well, the problem with Paul being in Jerusalem is when he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus in Jerusalem. And when he was Saul of Tarsus in Jerusalem, he was a part of the group of the Pharisees who were determined to persecute everybody who was part of the way. Everybody had a relationship or anything to do with Christ. And he gave his hand to that. In fact, he was on the road to Damascus to do that very thing and bring those who were part of the way back to Jerusalem to be tried, if not to give their life, because as far as he was concerned, they are worshiping someone who died on the cross. And the law said, Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. And they are worshiping a man who hung on a tree. He can't be the Messiah. He must be a curse. And all who follow his way then therefore have no relationship with God and they are violating the law and they ought to be persecuted because of it. He will say later, I did it in all good conscience. I wasn't just out to chop somebody's head off. I was a fervent disciple of the law. Concerning the law, he said, I was blameless. Another text. But he also found the empty, how empty it was as well. So he comes back to Jerusalem. And doubtless, when he walks through the doors of the Jerusalem church, and when he shows up under the tent or under the tree, wherever they're collected, wherever they're assembled, doubtless there had to be some nervous stomachs that occurred. There had to be some real twitching and, 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 and squirming about when they saw Saul of Tarsus walk in among them. Has he come to 
arrest us? That's not what he came to do. He came to join himself so he could be going in and coming out with them. Barnabas stands up and says, listen, folks, this is not the same Saul of Tarsus. This man has changed. And he stood up for Paul and they accepted Paul into their fellowship there. And it says he was with them coming in and going out. He sought to join himself to them. Now you have an assembly that is specific. In the first you had an assembly that was macro. Now you have an assembly that is micro. You have a specific assembly of people. You have an assembly of people who've come together and there are certain obligations that exist there. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 16, he says, If any man or woman hath the widow, let them care for them, that the church be not charged, that the church can care for those who are widows indeed. That says that the church has a responsibility to care for their own needy saints, their own destitute among them. The church has that responsibility. And then we find the elders are to oversee the flock. Acts chapter 20, oversee the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, while he's at Miletus with them, they have elders who oversee that flock, who lead in therefore and direct that flock. And then you have the fact they come together for worship together and engage themselves in an assembly like this to worship together, all for the purpose of coming together to be a support group to be a team, if you will, to be a team with one another so there's no single player on the team that may be in danger like a duck that breaks ranks from the flock. And so the Lord not only established the relationship that comes from one being baptized into Christ, the Lord also established a relationship of people who collect themselves together by agreement. This is all mutual, folks. This is all mutual. We mutually come to, we mutually agree to come together with one purpose in mind. And we all agree to a common oversight, and we all agree to contribute our funds, to pull our resources, to do the work that God asked a local church to do. You see this in Philippians chapter 1 that was alluded to already, where he talks about to the bishops, deacons, and saints in Philippi. We know there were elders in Ephesus, and we know therefore there were saints in Ephesus, because elders come from saints. They come from disciples. Because Paul addresses the elders, Paul at Miletus, he addresses the elders in Ephesus. You see the church at Thessalonica. You see the church at Colossae. You see the church at Ephesus. You see the church at Thyatira. You see the church at Pergamum. You see the church at Philadelphia. All these are local congregations that exist in those areas. Where saints assemble together as one to do work together. Now, all who are part of that church they join are first of all part of having been baptized into Christ. The only prerequisite is to be, have been baptized into Christ. Those who are part of that general assembly now can join themselves to a group of people who are part of that specific assembly who in like manner have been baptized into Christ. But that then brings up a question. If there's a local church, and there is, you see it throughout the Bible, after the Testament, then what are my responsibilities? What are my obligations to that local church? 
Do I have any obligations? Do I have responsibilities here? Or is it just like the Lions Club? It's willy-nilly. It's here, there. Here a little bit, there a little bit. What, what's, what's one of my obligations that go with this? Other obligations that exist as part of a local congregation. I would submit to you that there are. For example, we each have the responsibility to keep ourselves pure and unspotted from the world. We see the problem with that in Corinth. When you have a man who has begun to live a sexually immoral life, and the Corinthians have not mourned about that, in fact, they become rather proud about it. Here is a man who has not kept himself pure. Everyone always have a responsibility to keep ourselves pure and unspotted from the world. Everyone must have a responsibility to shed our light. Everyone must have a responsibility to, to let our light shine. And every one of us have a responsibility to be careful with who we make ourselves associates. Because if we're not careful, the world influences more than the gospel influences. In fact, often in the religious world, the way of the world slash social gospel has more influence than the way of the gospel. In Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10, you see the woman of wisdom crying out and said, do not be entangled or enticed with them. You see the same language almost in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14. Don't be entangled or enticed with them. And then in chapter 13 of Proverbs, verse 20, he said, he that is wise will walk with the wise. That influence goes both ways. It cuts both ways. Do you remember why the Lord told the children of Israel when you go into the promised land that you are to rid the people of the promised land that are idolatrous and that they are heathen and immoral? Do you remember why he said to do that? He said, because if you don't, you'll be like them. He warned them, you need to separate yourself from the world and you need to have relationships with people that are not of this world that therefore will influence you to be just like them. Each one of us have that responsibility. That's not a responsibility of any one single person. It's a responsibility of every one of us. I would suggest second. There's a responsibility to be warm and friendly. Hebrews chapter 12, and I will turn and read this. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sorry, chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Look at what it said in verse, uh, in verse 12 beginning. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees to make straight the paths. I'm sorry, that's chapter 12. I began. I want that too, so let me finish that. And make paths the feet that what are lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people, wholeness, and seek without the ones, and pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Put a peg there, I'll come back to that verse. But now chapter 13 and verse 2, where I really want to go. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing you have unwittingly entertained angels. What's the Hebrew writer telling them to do? What he's saying is you need to be warm and hospitable to people. You never know who you're going to entertain. I don't know whether those angels there were celestial angels that have wings 
of where those angels there were, were ministering people because the word angel is a, is a transliterated word. It's an English word. It's a Greek word with an English in the on it. And the Lord word really is messengers. He said, be sure to entertain messengers. Now, whether those were heavenly messengers or whether those were apostles and prophets or teachers of God, I don't know. But he said, you entertain them. You be sure to entertain them. We should have a responsibility to be warm and friendly with people. What that means is that when we open our doors and we invite people into our home, our assembly, our fellowship of people, a part of our family to come into our home, what do we say? We want you to come in and we want you to be welcome. What that means is we give that which costs the least and gives the most. That means we give a smile to people. That means we notice people when they come to the door. That means we're thoughtful, we're kind to people. We meet people when they come to the door. That means we take people that come in the door and say, let me introduce you over here to this person. Let me tell you about this person and you share that with them. That means I'm the same way Monday through Saturday as I am on Sunday. That means that when people join us, it's not just that we have hovered around them and welcome them into our assembly initially, but that we don't let them lose sight of the fact we still want them, we still love them, and want to help you find your place here. You know, when a new baby is born into the family, or when a child is adopted into a family, you don't bring that adopted child in, the baby in, throw the couch and say, okay, you're going to hog or die for it's up to you. There's a refrigerator. You hungry? There it is. There's a change of diapers. Help yourself. We don't do that, do we? What do we do when we have someone that is a guest coming into our home? I'll tell you what Jody does, what Nana does. When these young people of both genders come and stay in our home in Blast or BBS or whatever it is, and we have seven to ten of either gender at one time in the house, what she says is this. She says, here, here is all the snacks. Here's the potato chips. Here's the candy. Here's everything you could possibly want as a child. You're at Nana's house, Mom and Daddy's house. Help your, not at Mom and Daddy's house. Help yourself. All the drinks are in the refrigerator in the garage. Help yourself. And we'll go to bed, and then we hear these feet coming down the stairs. And then we hear the door crack, and then we see, hear these feet going up the stairs. And we get up in the morning, and half the potato chips are gone. There's no drinks left in the refrigerator because they've all been ravaged. And they've been welcomed to everyone. What if we did that in our assemblies? And we can't have a refrigerator with a Coke, and we can't have a, a cupboard over here with potato chips and things like that. But I'll tell you what we can do. We can make people feel like they have a place here. We can make people feel like they're wanted here. We can make people feel like we really are people of God who are really, really, really glad to see you. And they can see us being warm with one another. They don't feel animosity. They don't feel adversity. They don't feel any negative vibes that exist because they see everybody that is all with one mind and one purpose. I didn't say everybody agrees with the same thing. I said have one mind and one purpose. 
Let me ask you something. Why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we do that? We have the greatest thing to offer people in the whole world. We have something to offer people nobody else in this world can offer them. The gospel. And we should want those people who are warm that come into our door, we should want them to know we are glad they're here and want them to know they're welcome to hear the gospel. And would you come and sit by me? Will you come be part of me? Will you come let me welcome you? By the way, after it's over, can I take you out to eat? Can I take you to, to Cold Stone and buy you some you know, ice cream cone? Can I do something to let you know we're really glad? Oh, and by the way, before I leave, I would say, have you met, have you met him or her? Let me tell you about him or her. You see what you're doing? Why wouldn't we do that? You see, I have as much responsibility as you to be pure. I have as much responsibility as you to, to shine my light. But each of us have a responsibility to be warm and open and, and welcoming of people. Do you want to be around people who have a frown on their face? Do you want to be around people who always have their head down? Do you want to be around people who look like their sourpuss and look like they just woke up as a grouse? Do you want to be around people like that? Nobody enjoys that. You want to be around people who are enthusiastic for what they're doing who demonstrate a care and a warmth for each other, who smile, who talk to people, who welcome people, who introduce people. You'll be around people who say, you're welcome in my house. And let me show you God's family while you're here. I have that responsibility. That's my responsibility in this local church. You know that? I can't do that in the General Assembly because I can't talk to Abraham. I can't talk to anybody in India. And I can't talk to anybody in South Africa. But Paul Williams in South Africa after years passed away in his 90s a few weeks ago. I can't talk to those brothers in South Africa and tell them I'm sure sorry. I told his son who lives in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm sorry. But here, if someone hurts or someone is in need, what we do as a fellowship of people is we rally around that person or persons. So they know they're not a lone duck flying into danger. I tell you, no responsibility that I have, that responsibility is to be here. Now let me just say, and I might have some kickback on this. I realize I can't find a single passage in the Bible that says you ought to attend. I can't find a passage that says you attend. But what's a byproduct of being part of somebody? What's a byproduct of being a collective together? Attendance isn't a purpose. Attendance is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of being a disciple with other disciples who want to be part of disciples. And so it's not something I have to do. It's something I want to do because I want to be with you. I want to be part of you. I get something for you, and I want to give something to you. You do something for me, and I want to do something for you. It's a byproduct of being in Christ. And because you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, I want to be with you, 
and you should want to be with one another. And as we're with one another, we then come together, and each one of us have that responsibility to be here. We have that responsibility. So the question is, why wouldn't I want to be? I know this next statement is going to sound like, sound like I'm throwing stones. I'm sorry, I, I can't. I'm not throwing stones. I'm not throwing bricks at anybody. I just want you to think about it. I'm just asking you to think about it. I'm always enamored. Why does 10.50 have more than 9 o'clock? It's the same people. I mean, we're, we're all here every week. It's not a new, new group of people that come in. Why does, does 10.50 always have more than 9 o'clock? I'm not saying you have bad hearts. I wouldn't say that at all. I wouldn't indict your heart at all. I would challenge your want to. I would challenge, why don't you want to be? Because here's the deal, and we all know this. We jolly well do what we want to do, and nothing's going to stop us. I may not can afford that King Ranch F-150, but if I want it, I'm going to get it. Because that's what I want. We all do what we want to do. So what I want to challenge you to do is, I want you to refocus your want to. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because you want to be here with God's people, doing things with God's people, worshiping together with them, praising God one voice together with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, hearing the Word of God preached, taught, and also hearing prayers and partaking of all we have to offer together. We have a host of things to offer each other. Why wouldn't I want to be here to do that? It's a byproduct, folks. It's a byproduct of my deep interest in the Lord. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.